today, uh, we have a situation where uh, coming out of the neoliberal period, unipolar period, when U.S. Uh, and European Union also basically followed uh, the same path, same same prescriptions, uh, uh, and even UNDP uh, at the United Nations. Uh, so they were all pushing this neoliberal line, uh, and uh, um, they uh, 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 were claiming that this would, as you put it uh, so nicely, uh, lead to uh, great uh, uh, industrial, agricultural, and overall development. Uh, it really hasn't happened in many places. In fact, it led to crisis uh, uh, in many parts of the Global South, uh, starting with uh, uh, Central and South America, starting with Mexico, the so-called debt crisis of 1980s, which uh, gave these uh, organizations and uh, northern states to push even further their neoliberal program. Uh, um, uh, but now I think there is an opening to, with this BRICS, the, the uh, multipolar world that is developing. And to go back to your original uh, um, uh, question, uh, I think it is a major shift. Uh, uh, it could be derailed, uh, but I don't think uh, uh, it's going to go down without a serious struggle. And I think uh, there is a good chance that the multipolar system might prevail. Hello, everybody. This is Pascal from Neutrality Studies, and I'm joined today by Haider A. Khan, a professor of international and development economics at the University of Denver. Professor Khan was born in Dhaka, uh, at the time East Pakistan, today that's Bangladesh. He then became an academic and a policy advisor, being the chief international advisor to Arab trade and human development in Cairo, and a senior economic advisor to the Secretary General of UNCTAD in Geneva and several government and international organizations. He has published 25 books and over 200 articles in professional journals, and he's a poet and art critic too. Uh, Haider Khan, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, and thank you for your kind invitation. So uh, you're a development economist, and Indeed. from my experience, broadly speaking, there's kind of two types of development economists. One being these thoroughly like neocon side of the game who would basically sell their grandmother for more liberalization in developing countries. And then there are the more lefty kind of Marxist inspired types like Vijay Prashad or Amartya Sen. And uh, is it fair to say that you probably belong to the second group? Yes, actually, I'm uh, uh, a, a, an avid student of uh, Professor Sen. Uh, um, uh, we I have spent a lot of time with him um, online. You can find an interview I did of him. Um, uh, he is definitely one of my mentors. Uh, and then Eric Thorbeck, uh, who was a student of Jan Kinbergen, um, uh, uh, I think the first ever Nobel Prize winner from the Netherlands, uh, a very, very a humanist, um, uh, socialist uh, type of economy, democratic socialist uh, type of uh, uh, social thinker and economist. And I've also been influenced by Gunnar Myrdal, uh, the great uh, Swedish uh, political economist, uh, also a Nobel Prize winner. Um, so um, uh, I think I, I, uh, I have read the other side too. I, uh, so I'm informed about the other side. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I speak of uh, what I know of them as well. 
Um, so I, I think I can be fair. Okay, and then, um, I mean, because we would like to talk today, especially about developing countries and about what's going on in um, um, in, in terms of their economics at the moment, maybe maybe we get to talk a little bit about Pakistan later, but at the moment, let me start maybe with your personal development. Um, you were born and raised in Dhaka, and then now you're in Denver. Can you Indeed. tell? Can you tell me, like, what were what was your path to academics? Uh, it's a, a long journey, uh, but I can make it short. Um, uh, uh, I uh, uh, was a student of uh, physical science actually when I was growing up, uh, as well as interested in literature and and music. Um, um, uh, I uh, um, had a really good childhood and and good adolescence. Uh, uh, but by the time I uh, was in fourth or fifth grade, already there was a lot of turbulence uh, in then East Pakistan. Uh, students in particular uh, were revolting against the military dictatorship, uh, very courageous ones. In fact, I, I have a book <laughs> that in English that just came out last year where I have described all these things. Uh, uh, my own... Um, uh, interest in uh, society and social science grew by leaps and bounds when uh, the movement for autonomy of East Pakistan and other parts of uh, what was then called West Pakistan uh, became very strong, uh, um, uh, led by dissident uh, uh, politicians and uh, uh, by students, uh, but they also merged with uh, uh, movements uh, and demands for social justice by workers and by peasants uh, who are horribly exploited and still are to, to a large extent, uh, I'm sorry to say. Uh, but uh, uh, that was uh, a time of awakening for people like me. Uh, and that started me on the road to thinking about so uh, society seriously. And then after the um, uh, war of liberation in Bangladesh, uh, I realized that uh, inequalities of all sorts, um, uh, starting with economic inequalities, uh, um, but not stopping there, uh, were at the root of um, uh, these kind of problems. Uh, uh, and so I thought that I, would, I should study economics along with uh, uh, physics and mathematics, which I always have loved, uh, I still love. Um, and uh, I studied music and literature too. <laughs> and I had this opportunity to come to the U.S. Uh, through a program called World Youth Forum. Um, I met uh, many young men and women uh, uh, from many different countries. Many of them were very progressive and still remain so, especially uh, the ones from um, uh, uh, the Global South, as well as uh, Europeans. Uh, um, especially my German friend, Akim Larish, and my uh, Italian friend, uh, Claudio Treves, who actually just retired from his career in trade union movement. <laughs> so uh, that was a transformative um, experience for me, for all of us, I think. Uh, uh, and that led me to uh, uh, study economics more seriously. And then when I came to graduate school at Cornell, I met... Uh, uh, Eric Thorbeck, of course, uh, whose name I have mentioned, but I also met other uh, progressive thinkers. Um, uh, uh, and we had to organize, however, our own study groups to uh, study dissident economics. Uh, um, so uh, that was one thing that uh, uh, I think launched us towards uh, even more independent thinking 
for ourselves and organizing uh, for ourselves. I also got involved in uh, student and labor movement in the US, uh, uh, even when I was a student. Uh, uh, and then later Sen came to uh, uh, as a visiting professor at Cornell. And uh, that was my first uh, live encounter with him, although I, have, uh, I had read much of what he had written until then uh, earlier. And, and, and uh, I thought through them or tried to think through them. Um, uh, productively and critically. So we had long discussions um, on everything. Uh, and that's that continues till, till today. So, and um, if we now talk about the big picture of development and the world, well, world politics, and I know that you're also one of the people studying not only geopolitics, but geoeconomics, right? That's, that's, Indeed. that's a, a part of, of your work. So, yes. Um, if we look at how things have been changing over the last one year with the war, the Russian-Ukrainian war, but also with the tremendous development uh, that, that, that went on with the BRICS nations, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, with the de-dollarization of uh, large parts or, or attempted de-dollarization of large, par large parts of the non-Western countries, um, how do you evaluate what's currently happening? Um, is it a huge step or is it is it going to be just an, another small step to, uh, towards a multipolar world? How do you see things? Okay, no, that's a very uh, deep and complex question or a set of questions. Uh, they are all connected, of course. Uh, um, and uh, uh, I think one uh, uh, reason I always started to think broadly, or I tried to think broadly, or I was attracted towards thinking broadly, was because of the war itself in, 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 in Bangladesh, in East Pakistan then, uh, uh, war of liberation, uh, as we call it. Uh, and I think uh, um, um, uh, uh, economic and social problems, as well as what we might call more narrowly cultural issues, uh, issues of language, issues of uh, religion, and other things, uh, um, those are also connected. Um, um, and I think uh, if we start at the at a broad enough level, um, uh, we can see that um, uh, uh, we we have to um, understand geopolitics and geoeconomics. Uh, uh, geopolitics uh, in a critical sense, not uh, in the sense of uh, 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 empire building people like Halford Mackinder and, and the Germans, you know, who thought about uh, geopolitics uh, um, uh, from an uh, uh, imperialist uh, point of view or would be imperialist point of view uh, during uh, the earlier part of the 20th century. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, you cannot, uh, uh, um, uh, of course, deny your geographical location. Uh, but geography itself uh, is politically defined. Uh, it's not just uh, uh, something on, on a map. Uh, so I would say uh, there is a history of nation formation. Of course, uh, being from Germany, you would know that uh, better than most people. Uh, the whole uh, process of German nation building, you know, the, uh, even the debate between Klein Deutsch and, and Gross Deutsch uh, supporting people um, and all that Italian unification has a, a similar story. Uh, um, but details, of course, are important. Uh, so given that uh, we have the uh, 
uh, ideology and politics of modern nation state uh, and state building, um, um, which isn't innocent at all uh, internally. Uh, and certainly externally, uh, we have to uh, admit that uh, given um, that these are class-driven societies uh, um, um, and uh, that uh, there, uh, uh, there's a striving uh, by the ruling class to be dominant or at least to be secure enough uh, from other countries' uh, encroachments. Uh, so this essentially leads to uh, uh, a kind of slant on economic development um, uh, that uh, leans increasingly towards uh, fulfilling the needs of state building and the needs of uh, the ruling classes themselves. Uh, and they vary. Some are more ambitious than others, clearly. Uh, um, and uh, But uh, uh, the entire history of uh, modern Europe, certainly, and modern um, West or North, uh, uh, um, as one might wish to call, including North, North, North America, uh, uh, Canada and US certainly. Uh, we, we see that uh, great power rivalry becomes uh, a fact of life. Um, uh, and that is much more complicated than Mackinder's uh, categorization. Uh, so we have to see a geopolitics uh, from above even in this nuanced uh, historical uh, uh, way. And then we have to see it from below as whose interests it really serves uh, historically and whose interest uh, is it serving right now. And, uh, um, you know, there have been uh, uh, many, many uh, anti-war poets, uh, good anti-war poets, uh, Brecht has a very famous poem uh, where um, uh, he talks about the general, you know, who uh, is bragging about his tanks and, and his <laughs> army. Uh, but the uh, uh, citizen asks, you know, uh, but you cannot do it all by machines. You know, human beings are needed. And are the human beings always going to obey you? Are they always going to follow you? I think that is the critical spirit. The spirit of revolt also exists there. And we can come to geoeconomics perhaps uh, after this. Yes, uh, I just um, want to interject that we are witnessing a moment in time when uh, geopolitics or um, occurrences in international politics mimics art. We've had a very famous German singer in the 1990s who sang 99 red balloons that, yes, were, yes, the, that were the reason for a nuclear war. And in February, we, you know, we got very close with balloon mania in the United yes. States, right? Yes, yes, uh, yes. It's funny how, sometimes how artists are able to predict the future. I always thought that was, that was just a song. It turned out to be a prediction. Um, but if we, if we take that into today's world again, like in 2023, um, how do you see development, uh, economics changing and, and the current, um, power balance changing? I mean, uh, take the geoeconomics that you want to talk about. Okay. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Uh, yeah. Life indeed, uh, sometimes imitates art. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, uh Geoeconomics, uh, of course, uh, uh, looks at uh, economics uh, uh, more politically, 
you, you can even say geopolitically, uh, but I, I would say both internally and externally. Uh, sometimes people uh, uh, look at geoeconomics only from the realist lens. Uh, um, and I, that is a good starting point, I think, because we have to acknowledge that uh, there is a structure uh, some people call it anarchy, but uh, uh, it's a little more complicated than just just pure anarchy. Uh, um, but there is a structure in the international relations where, uh, as Mearsheimer puts it, self-help is necessary quite often. Um, but uh, uh, that's not all of it. There is internal politics and internal economics. So economic development, as I was uh, alluding to before, uh, quite often is uh, driven by uh, those national, uh, so-called national interests uh, defined by internal debates, taking external factors into account. Uh, and one example is uh, Franz Liszt in, from Germany, actually, you know, who came to the U.S., learned about protectionism here, then went back to Germany. And uh, he was basically a German nationalist. In fact, he uh, introduced a term national economy. Yeah, in, in, in the vocabulary of um, uh, economies. So I would, in a way, put him as one of the pioneers of geoeconomics in this sense. Uh, uh, and uh, there we have uh, both the economic uh, structure, the different parts of the economy, which are interlinked. Uh, and as the economy um, becomes more productive, uh, in Marxian terms, as productive forces develop, um, as uh, innovation takes place, um, uh, then uh, you have even closer connections between different parts of the economy. And uh, of necessity, uh, uh, as Marx famously points out in his um, uh, Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels, um, uh, they wrote it together, uh, that uh, this bourgeois society breaks down all the Chinese walls, right? <laughs> and you, cannot, you can no longer be isolated from the world economy. And there again, the game for dominance uh, becomes important, but this game for dominance uh, uh, is conditioned by both external factors and internal factors. Uh, uh, but then we have to go beyond that because my own view is that one has to look at this, uh, sometimes this is called defensive realism or neoclassical realism. And I say that we have to transcend this one because we have another vision for, for people-oriented economy and people-oriented future and people-oriented politics. Uh, so I call my view uh, uh, critical trans-neoclassical realism. So realism is there. I think we have to admit that. But it's not the final uh, uh, comment or it's not the final destination for us. Certainly, if we, are, if we value peace, we have to uh, think about a world which is beyond this kind of rivalry. So, I mean, when we when we look at how the economy worked for the, at least the last 30 years, right, we've had the United States that was shouting at the top of its lungs that all the developing nations should open their markets, uh, absolute liberalization, no trades, no tariffs, no barriers, which, of course, in all the countries that heeded that call led to the absolute exploitation of their natural mineral wealth, while any kind of development of local industries was stifled. Like, you know, there was no development development at all. And there's there's famous books on, you know, how uh, the US and the West developed precisely because they protected core industries. And if you look at uh, success cases in Southeast Asia, like uh, Singapore, they protected their core 
uh, uh, industries and um, had this stellar rise. Um, now this that's why this globalization, the idea of globalization, was was is a sugar coated term for. Um, exploitation of uh, de developing nations that are supposed and sometimes forbidden by the IMF, by the World Bank, from actually putting uh, using tariffs. And now, now the the same United States and the same West is starting to put very very harsh uh, tariffs, tariff barriers, and sanctions, and so on. You know, it's basically the opposite of the previous approach. But now they do that under the, the guise of uh, national security, right? Um, it, it, we are seeing a, a, a inver inversing of the previous dogma. Um, how does that make sense, or how do you make sense out of this um, out of this huge change? It's really fascinating. If we look at it historically again, uh, starting in 1790, when um, uh, Alexander Hamilton wrote his famous report on uh, uh, manufacturers, uh, basically arguing U.S. should be a protectionist economy. As I said, Franz Liszt actually learned about uh, uh, this strategy from the Americans of that time. Um, and up until uh, the end of the Second World War, U.S. was definitely a very protectionist country. But there was uh, thinking about free trade, which would benefit the U.S. Uh, and of course, there are already theories that argue it would benefit everybody. And they came in handy as well. Uh, uh, one of my mentors in America was a great scholar named uh, 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 Professor Warren Hickman. And Professor Hickman uh, both served in the Second World War uh, in actually Eisenhower's uh, headquarters. Uh, uh, and then he went to study in Geneva, uh, that famous school uh, of international studies in Geneva. Um, uh, and uh, uh, he wrote his dissertation under Wilhelm Ropka, I think is his last name. Uh, very famous conservative, uh, uh, classically conservative, classical liberal, actually, they would call themselves a uh, uh, free trade kind of person. And his dissertation was about how U.S. internal politics uh, veered increasingly uh, towards free trade that ultimately actually benefited the U.S. Uh, and you could argue at that time that it benefited Europe, for example, if, if no other uh, place. Uh, but uh, 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 from um, the time U.S. basically took away the mantle of empire from the British, uh, uh, we can date it precisely to Suez Canal crisis in 1956. Um, I think U.S. basically uh, had the rhetoric um, uh, of helping others uh, and set up agencies like USAID. Uh, but uh, its interest basically was dictated by uh, uh, Cold War imperatives, uh, rivalry against the USSR. And as Mearsheimer correctly points, points out, uh, uh, there were actually two bounded orders at that time, bounded in the sense that they were not international orders, one by the U.S. Uh, and the other one was by uh, the uh, Warsaw Pact, uh, uh, including Warsaw Pact countries led by or dominated by USSR at that time. And the two were definitely rivals. Um, uh, um, uh, the entire history of Cold War, of course, is more complicated. There were also uh, kind of forced cooperation when both sides realized that mutual destruction through nuclear war is a real possibility. Uh, but we can leave that aside for the time being and focus on the uh, economic side. So what really happened <clears throat> was that uh, at most you could... Uh, 
uh, have uh, light industrial development. Uh, but still, uh, as people like Raul Prabish and others uh, who uh, were instrumental in <coughs> founding of Umtad uh, in Geneva, where I worked uh, for some time, uh, pointed out that uh, uh, the trade itself was unequal. And uh, uh, we need really the right kind of trade from the South and not, not this so-called aid. Uh, and uh, uh, in my own work, I have also shown how aid leads to dependency. Uh, I'm not the only one, of course, and how uh, much of the aid basically is misallocated um, um, and, and very little of it actually bears the kind of fruits that people in developing countries so-called really want and need. Um, so I think uh, uh, it will be uh, uh, on the whole correct to say that uh, uh, aid and the kind of international division of labor that was uh, developed uh, even during the so-called golden age of post-war capitalism uh, up until say mid 70s uh, basically created dependency and uh, that Latin American uh, critical thinkers, uh, to their credit, noticed it uh, quite early on, uh, uh, and they formed the whole dependencia school of, of, of thinking. And then world systems theorists, uh, people like Emmanuel Wallerstein uh, and others, uh, uh, basically uh, formed a more historically and global, uh, or globally oriented uh, approach. Uh, in, in world systems uh, uh, theory approach. Uh, and uh, in my own thinking, I have uh, followed basically uh, these tendencies, trying to make them more specific. And, and uh, because I come from a background in physics and mathematics, also trying to make whatever possible uh, more precise um, and sometimes formal, but I don't think uh, uh, that is a necessity. We need to understand the political economic dynamics clearly. So um, with your knowledge, can you tell me what went wrong? What were the main mistakes that kept nations like Bangladesh from uh, from developing more quickly? I mean, we have a model that was extremely, extremely successful, the Chinese one, right? The Chinese lifted three, four hundred million people out of poverty in a span of 30 years. Yeah, um, more, than, more than that, actually, probably 600 million or more. More than half a billion. I mean, most fantastic development success in the history of humanity, right? Um, and other nations didn't. So if you look at, like, let's let's take Bangladesh or let's take, like, a, a large part of, of sub-Saharan Africa that just, that it's not the same, they are not the same today anymore as they, as they were in the past, but if in comparison to what China achieved, it went much slower. Can you tell me what should have been done differently, let's say, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, or what should have happened differently? I'm not saying these countries didn't have agency, they were struggling with... A, ton and a ton of political issues being still dominated by their former colonial colonial overlords. But what should have happened in order to make that kind of Chinese model of development possible? Indeed, uh, excellent question. Uh, um, I wish we had more time uh, to discuss this at length. But briefly, uh, uh, we can start with uh, Marx's famous observation in his 18th Brumaire of Napoleon Bonaparte. He says that uh, human beings make history, I'm paraphrasing him, but not as they like, because uh, they have to make it under given circumstances. Uh, so there is agency, but it's not perfect by any means. Uh, uh, now let's uh, uh, fast forward to um, uh, First World War, uh, 
which of course, uh, all, there were already these movements starting with Chartist movement in England, the first uh, uh, industrialized capitalist country, and then moving on to other countries of Europe. Um, uh, uh, and uh, anti-colonial movements, of course, have a history as well. But uh, 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 the uh, socialist parties in, in Europe uh, really betrayed uh, the cause of the working people. Uh, and the uh, revolution that took place in uh, so what became Soviet Union um, uh, uh, had great promises, but because of a number of factors which we don't have time to review here, it ended up in Stalinism, just, just to give it a kind of moniker. Uh, and that uh, was not democratic. Um, uh, it um, did provide some security for the people, but ultimately led to this unworkable kind of economic system even, um, uh, uh, quite leaving aside political issues. Uh, um, uh, so by the time China itself had its revolution, although this was much longer lasting and more poor peasant based and more egalitarian, uh, China also struggled. Uh, you know, it went through uh, uh, several, um, uh, uh, I think, ultra-left kind of moves, uh, including the so-called Great Leap Forward, which ended up in a famine. And then during Cultural Revolution, although there were some, I would say, good aspects where they wanted to follow the model of the Paris Commune and be more democratic, it ultimately degenerated into factional fights and both above and, and below. Uh, and Deng Xiaoping, who was a pragmatic person, uh, decided that uh, China needed to stop all this and modernize. Uh, and I think he was at least 50% right in that. Um, uh, in that. And uh, China uh, took, in, took advantage of international division of labor um, uh, by giving up uh, the idea of exporting revolution, if it ever had that. Uh, and for some time it did, actually, or some, some part of the party did. And they pragmatically focused on uh, uh, exporting and um, uh, trying to get as much foreign technology as they could in the process. Uh, but it can't be denied that uh, along with uh, uh, improvement uh, uh, in uh, GDP per capita, uh, as well as uh, productivity, um, uh, China also uh, was forced to exploit more its own peasantry and its own workers. Uh, so some of the socialist institutions in China that were developing, that were nascent, had to be sacrificed or leaders thought that they had to be sacrificed. And it went to the other extreme almost uh, from 1995 onwards. Uh, um, and China became extremely unequal. So while uh, no one can deny Chinese achievements, especially in poverty reduction, etc., uh, China uh, also uh, faces problems uh, of inequality reduction, uh, problem, of course, of environmental uh, uh, policies, uh, uh, and, of course, managing its external relations. Uh, I do think, however, that there is a progressive part of Chinese society and Chinese party still. Uh, so they have lots of problems, but uh, uh, they have to sort it out themselves. Uh, what China needs more than anything else right now is peace. And um, let's talk about Bangladesh. You wrote a paper about the country's position in the 1970s, being part of the non-aligned uh, movement. Um, how did that go? What are the lessons and what would you say Bangladesh might be um, trying, would try non-alignment again now? 
um, I would just like to discuss in particular one paragraph that you wrote. I'm going to read this out here in the in the conclusion. You wrote, by emphasizing peace along with non-alignment in order to create an egalitarian development trajectory for the global south, um, Bangabandhu was offering a way for the post-colonial world to move forward together making the best use of their natural and human resources. This still remains the best strategy for genuine development. Could you explain this and where you see that today? Sure, sure. Well, actually, of course, the non-aligned movement uh, started uh, in a way in Europe with Yugoslavia, with Tito. Um, 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 uh, and, and, and Indonesia. And moved and... to, move to uh, India and Indonesia uh, and then uh, China also uh, uh, thought uh, it, uh, it was an attractive proposition. Um, uh, and I think that vision of Bandung has been uh, discussed very ably recently by Vijay Prashad. Um, uh, uh, he is a good historian, um, uh, and uh, there's a lot of detail, so one can consult him. Uh, on the economic side, I think, uh, uh, though, although, as I mentioned, historically there were... Um, uh, many imperfections uh, in finding the right balance between market and state, uh, what part should be planned and what part should be left to initiatives of people. Uh, but I think fundamentally the idea that China still is following, uh, that commanding heights of the economy should be uh, under control of popular governments, uh, not uh, multinational corporations from abroad, uh, uh, or foreign powers, or big business, uh, big private business domestically, that is quite sound. But I think China has shown us the, uh, 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 both USSR and China, former USSR, China, they, they showed us uh, that that kind of uh, uh, top-down economy only, a state-run economy, uh, um, cannot be a practical way of uh, uh, developing a society uh, that is ultimately modern and uh, and uh, productive, uh, not just of uh, military equipment, but also necessities of the people and for the people. So I think we need that kind of a mix. And we have a better model today. Uh, the problem of countries like Bangladesh, uh, uh, first of all, uh, uh, the regime I discussed uh, from 1972, roughly to 1975, um, uh, had great possibilities, but basically was thwarted by uh, a combination of internal factors and external factors uh, that resulted in assassination, a very, very brutal assassination of uh, one of the leading uh, uh, lights uh, and one of the founders of uh, Bangladesh, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, and almost his entire family. Uh, his eldest daughter is now the prime minister, Sheikh Hasina. Um, uh, and she survived, she and her sister survived only because they were abroad. In fact, uh, uh, they were in Germany uh, with uh, uh, the husband of uh, Sheikh Hasina, who was a physicist uh, uh, and was uh, in, in the German uh, uh, town of Karlsruhe, I think. Uh, uh, that's how they survived. Otherwise, they would have been killed as well. And since then, we had this kind of neoliberal right-wing turn, um, uh, politically, uh, socially, uh, economically especially. And that uh, uh, led to a very haphazard kind of uh, uh, development, especially in infrastructure uh, and also uh, private uh, uh, um, uh, ownership uh, was uh, uh, accepted uncritically. 
and a lot of uh, wealth of the country, uh, which is poor to begin with, uh, went abroad. Uh, and they still are abroad. Uh, so I think uh, Bangladesh had been struggling uh, since 1975. Uh, and many mistakes happened even in these three years that I described. I uh, point them out in my paper also objectively. Um, but I think uh, on the whole, it was going in the right direction. Um, uh, and since then, uh, even with the restoration of parliamentary democracy, which has been a good thing, I'd say, uh, but it's not the magic bullet, uh, because uh, uh, parliamentary democracy is, uh, uh, after all, a form of democracy. And uh, a lot depends on uh, who are the parliamentarians, uh, which interests in society do they represent, how are they resolved. Uh, so, uh, and I have written on these things uh, at length somewhere else and other people have as well. And I, if I have seen a little farther, it's only because I stand literally on the shoulders of giants. Uh, um, so uh, my debt to them cannot be really uh, ever um, uh, repaid. Um, I think uh, uh, today uh, we have a situation where uh, coming out of the neoliberal period, unipolar period, when US uh, and European Union also basically followed uh, the same path, same same prescriptions, uh, uh, and even UNDP uh, at the United Nations. Uh, so they were all pushing this neoliberal line, uh, and uh, um, they uh, 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 were claiming that this would, as you put it uh, so nicely, uh, lead to uh, great uh, uh, industrial, agricultural, and overall development. Uh, it really hasn't happened in many places. In fact, it led to crisis uh, uh, in many parts of the global south, uh, starting with uh, uh, Central and South America, starting with Mexico, the so-called debt crisis of 1980s, which uh, gave these uh, organizations and uh, northern states to push even further their neoliberal program. Uh, um, uh, but now I think there is an opening to, with this BRICS, the, the uh, multipolar world that is developing. And to go back to your original uh, um, uh, question, uh, I think it is a major shift. Uh, uh, it could be derailed, uh, but I don't think uh, uh, it's going to go down without a serious struggle. And I think uh, there is a good chance that the multipolar system might prevail, uh, but uh, uh, if the uh, U.S. forces a war between uh, itself and and China, of course, its real preference is to have a war uh, between China and the East Asian uh, countries, um, you know, witness the rearming of Japan. Japan. Uh, and you point out very nicely the contradictions between Article 9 of Japan and uh, uh, the new security uh, a strategy, which of course has many different interpretations from a very hawkish one to a very defense-oriented one. Um, ultimately, it would be the politics uh, inside the countries and regionally and between the US, uh, Europe, and uh, other uh, regions of the world that will determine which way countries like Japan will go. And uh, then there will always be people who can interpret the <laughs> documents accordingly. But so do you think that in a more multipolar world, um, is it going to be a world of more free trade or of more protectionism or is the is the differentiation wrong? I mean, let's say let's take Bangladesh again. If we have a, a truly multipolar world where India, China, 
Russia, the United States, maybe Japan, like are the big, big uh, trading powers. Uh, will Bangladesh be able to try to grow out of being just the world's sweatshop uh, and and develop other industries? Or will that be more complicated because all the others will say, like, you're not going to do that. You just make T-shirts. I think uh, uh, the latter, of course, is uh, uh, preferable, uh, where you have overall uh, uh, articulation of the economy, uh, as we call it. Um, so uh, you don't stay limited just to uh, agricultural crops um, uh, or uh, worse yet, cash crops uh, uh, and in um, industry, just uh, uh, garment or some light manufacturing uh, of industry. On the other hand, I think uh, uh, small countries are uh, at a disadvantage uh, uh, always uh, because they are starting from a very small base and, and uh, because of colonialism again uh, um, uh, and class oppression, uh, uh, a poorly articulated or disarticulated economy where there is no balance between different sectors. Uh, uh, coming back to the trade question, um, uh, I think openness uh, to some extent, of course, is uh, uh, welcome if it is not too asymmetric. Uh, every country that has developed, uh, uh, other than maybe uh, uh, England, even England uh, uh, had restrictions about uh, 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 wool uh, manufacture, uh, and it also stole technology from uh, Netherlands, uh, especially, um, and uh, uh, enticed uh, uh, Dutch skilled workers to migrate uh, <laughs> to England. Um, and then it didn't allow them to migrate anywhere else from England once they were there. Um, uh, the, uh, so uh, uh, because of the unevenness in the world, you need uh, uh, some kind of infant industry protection uh, for some time. But we have to think also in terms of dynamic comparative advantage because uh, uh, you cannot allow the infant to be infant forever. Uh, infant has to grow up. Uh, uh, and here, I think East Asian um, uh, experience, uh, uh, as well as early German experience, uh, uh, but uh, uh, in Asia, maybe East Asian experience is more uh, relevant. Uh, the way Japan developed, the way Korea, Taiwan, and, and most recently uh, uh, China developed. Uh, the exceptions are city states like Hong Kong, Singapore. But even there, they provided public housing uh, uh, to low-income people uh, and other facilities, including healthcare facilities and, uh, you know, what we might call social wage. Uh, um, so those are things that we also have to take into account. Uh, uh, human beings cannot be productive if they don't have good health, if they don't have uh, good education, training facilities, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we have to... Uh, uh, have all of them in mind. And uh, Professor Amort Kiasen came up with the famous idea of capabilities, uh, which goes actually back to, uh, in the Western tradition, certainly uh, to Adam Smith. Um, and also uh, you can take it all the way to, uh, to Aristotle and his idea of eudaimonia, the, the human flourishing, uh, which requires uh, some material preconditions as well as spiritual <laughs> and political preconditions, uh, as we know. Um, maybe toward the end of our interview, let me ask you about Pakistan. Um, Pakistan is going through a crisis, I think, 
as big as never before. It's um, at the it's at the brink of civil war. Um, where do you see the situation for that country going in East Asia? Pakistan was a problematic country right from the beginning, and that was shown uh, when uh, East Pakistan felt the need to uh, separate from Pakistan. But even in, in its present form, Pakistan has uh, uh, many different ethnic groups, uh, many different linguist, linguistic groups uh, dominated by basically uh, business people, uh, very rich business people uh, in collusion with the military, the upper echelons of the, of the military. And certainly two areas of Pakistan uh, have always felt uh, very oppressed um, and unjustly treated. One is uh, uh, Baluchistan. The other one is Northwest Frontier Province uh, in, in WFP. Um, uh, and uh, uh, they have been centers of uh, uh, a lot of dissident activities, uh, including rebellions from time to time. Um, uh, I think one factor that uh, people uh, from ruling classes have used to keep Pakistan together is the fear of India uh, and 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 religiosity um, uh, using religion as an ideology that was used in East Pakistan too. But uh, uh, in the 1960s, it worked less and less until it didn't work at all. Um, uh, in West Pakistan, I do not um, know or I cannot say with confidence what would happen because right now. The main oppositional force um, uh, to military um, uh, led by um, uh, the ex-cricketer uh, Imran Khan, uh, who seems to be a very decent fellow in so many ways. Um, uh, and of course, uh, as a cricket fan, I, I'm a fan, fan of um, uh, that Imran Khan, certainly. Uh, but he is trying to use um, a version of Islam. Uh, it looks, I, I, I'm, I'm, I have not studied it closely, but it looks to me like a more progressive, justice-oriented form of Islam, which did exist actually in the history of Islam. Um, but it went out of the window, even in the early history of Islam, as soon as uh, uh, Islam be, uh, uh, actually became uh, uh, an, uh, an ideology of an empire, you know, from uh, um, uh, roughly um, uh, about uh, 680 uh, AD. Uh, and then uh, when Baghdad was destroyed uh, in 1258 uh, by the Mongols, uh, it shifted uh, to uh, what uh, today is Turkey. Uh, but at that time, uh, at first was the Seljuk uh, Turk Empire and then Ottoman uh, Turk Empire. Uh, so uh, uh, Islam's uh, uh, extended history does not offer me at least much hope that uh, uh, it can become um, uh, the kind of original democratic uh, uh, or at least uh, associational kind of uh, political system uh, uh, that seemed to have existed. Um, uh, in any case, that existed in a very different type of social formation historically. Uh, so I think... Uh, uh, Pakistan will face a lot of uh, 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 political and other types of crises, unfortunately, uh, uh, and uh, there may well be even more violence, uh, you know, looking into the near future. But I wish those people well. Uh, uh, I speak some of their languages, um, uh, uh, and there are great people, very progressive people in, in Pakistan, uh, 
they are always have been. I devoted actually one chapter in my recent book that I uh, mentioned uh, on those progressive people from uh, what is today's Pakistan. Uh, and, and, and so I hope that uh, they can form a kind of uh, uh, political movement and, and coalition that would lead towards a, a more just social formation. I don't think creating more countries will actually lead to uh, um, uh, the solution. You know, that's, that's no magic bullet either. Um, uh, and it's a sign of desperation always. Uh, uh, you have to do a lot of other things, as I discuss in my paper on Bangladesh that you mentioned, and I have written other more specific papers uh, uh, dealing with specific issues, including issue of poverty and inequality. Uh, uh, but first of all, Pakistan really needs to have a civilian accountable government. And uh, without that, uh, you could uh, uh, give money, uh, you could uh, facilitate trade, uh, but the uh, and it might actually even contribute to GDP growth. Uh, it may increase the GDP, uh, however modestly. Uh, but the fruits of that growth will not uh, really uh, go down very far below the top layer of the society. And then uh, uh, this group basically transfers wealth from within Pakistan to um, uh, other places that are safer for them. Uh, whenever they have trouble, they actually make uh, for the exit. Um, uh, uh, and they are, in that sense, they are globalized. They are internationally connected. Um, so I think Pakistan needs an accountable government. It doesn't have to be a perfect one, but it has to be accountable to the people. And there has there have, will have to be some leaders who, have some sense of responsibility to the country, to the people, um, uh, uh, to some modicum of justice. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, after that, uh, uh, Pakistan has a lot of good economists. Uh, uh, many of them are actually uh, abroad. Uh, some have studied in the same schools that people like me have studied. Um, and they have uh, many good ideas, uh, including ideas for what kind of uh, exports to promote um, and how to improve the balance of trade and the balance of payments, uh, uh, how to follow a more balanced kind of development path. Uh, so Pakistan really does not lack for brain power uh, at that level. I think what it needs is uh, some modicum of political will. Okay, and now toward the end, you told me that you would like to uh, end the, the interview with a sonata, actually, on uh, an, an anti-war sonata. So, uh, Haida, I, may I ask you to give us your sonata? Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. you. You remember everything. Okay, thank you so much. Um, yes, I wrote this uh, poem, actually, during, the, during an actual war. Uh, so it's it's not an exercise in abstract poetry or <laughs> abstract expressionism. Okay, it's called. Wait, wait, uh, when did you write it? Like, give me the background. What, what, I wrote it the, during Bangladesh. Uh, the Gulf War, oh. um, uh, an invasion of uh, of Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. Uh, but uh, sadly, uh, its relevance is still there, and uh, I, I I I think of. Uh, uh, the tragic war in Ukraine uh, today when I uh, uh, read this poem anywhere. Uh, so here it is. Like a sonata, it has three parts. 
first part, an invitation to be a part of war, the face of the other half hidden, half revealed, like the moon in the mist, only the dark side, forever invisible, the invocation at last of the beast within the omen. Part two. The conjurers of war build monuments of burnt landscapes. Their war is death inscribed in finely embroidered phrases. The violence of the rotten sun scatters skulls, skeletons, radiates macabre fantasies on a landscape lacerated. Death dance in euphoria mask the urgency of a transgression that reason can no longer contain. The dark abyss their eyes cannot see. There is no moon tonight, only desolate dreams, unreal nocturne. And part three, the finale. A clutching at the roots outside, voices awakening, strip away the concealment of words and gestures of denial. War is the ultimate pornography of the body and the mind. So much must be laid bare, just so we can once again speak in our own tongues, just so we can once again turn to the sun without violence, just so one lone bird can sing once again on one snow-covered branch. Thank you. Thank you very much. I will have I will have to think about this one. I'm not I'm not I'm not a po I'm I'm not somebody who, who can easily understand poems, but I, I am sure there's there's a lot of people to who this speaks. Um my question, my eternal question will be why we do these wars. They are so irrational. Uh I keep I keep thinking, you know, as uh, if we are alone, humans, we get lonely very quickly. And as soon as you put us into a big into a bigger group of people, we start fighting. And if the groups become very big, we start war. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, nobody wants to be alone. So, <laughs> how do we make sense of um, how do we make sense of this? I'll keep asking, and I'll keep asking you again. I hope in the near future. Uh, Haidar, thank you very much for taking the time. Well, today. you're most welcome. I think this is the kind of togetherness that we need to move towards. Uh, open communication, as uh, one German philosopher, uh, Jürgen Habermas says, undominated discourse. And uh, a true uh, uh, human uh, brotherhood and sisterhood, uh, uh, as Schiller's uh, famous poem, uh, which Beethoven immortalized even further, uh, um, um, I think those messages are very important for us to remember. And and we will uh, talk about them again. Thank you very much, Haidar. We shall. Thank for you. Today. Thank you very much.